Thanks for listening to the Baptist 21 podcast. Don't forget our upcoming B21 lunch panel at this year's Southern Baptist Convention in New Orleans. There are still tickets available. You can find those at Baptist21.com. At the panel this year, we'll talk about the most pressing issues in the Southern Baptist Convention, and you'll hear from men like Albert Moeller, Danny Aiken, Juan Sanchez, Jarrett Stevens, and with at least one more panelist to come. You'll also get a hot chicken sandwich from Chick-fil-A, books, and good conversation around the questions you would want to ask about all things Southern Baptist Convention. So please make plans to be there. Again, you can get tickets at Baptist21.com. Baptist 21 is a pastor-led voice for Southern Baptists in the 21st century. The B21 podcast will discuss current issues in the SBC with Southern Baptist church leaders. To check out more resources, visit us at baptist21.com. Welcome to the Baptist 21 podcast. I'm Jed Coppinger, the lead pastor of Redemption City Church and one of the founders of Baptist 21. Baptist 21 has conversations about what it means to be Baptist in the 21st century. And today on the podcast, Pastor Bart Barber, the current SBC president and pastor of First Baptist Church Farmersville, is with us. Pastor Bart, thanks for joining us on the Baptist 21 podcast. Hey, good afternoon, Jeb. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, let's start uh, with probably the most obvious question. Why are you running again for SBC president? Uh, it's a great question, um, and I would say primarily because I feel like I have a duty to the Lord, uh, at least to to try to carry uh, on across the goal line. Some of the things have been started this year. Uh, I'm deeply committed to trying to leave the convention healthier than it was when uh, when I got it. That's not to diss the convention. It's just I think every president ought to have that objective uh, to try to improve a little bit incrementally, at least. Uh, the health of the convention, and so uh, and so, I just feel an attachment to uh, some of the things that we've started uh, to try to carry those things forward. Yeah, no, that's great. Well, the one one of the questions of health, or one of the major concerns right now uh, in the just overall direction of the SBC, comes from the EC report that was given just a little bit ago, um, where they use the word unsustainable. Uh, about the direction of the EC in particular, I believe. What needs to happen uh, to change direction, particularly there so that we can move in a better direction and just larger as a whole in Southern Baptist life? That's a great question. Uh, the the year that the auditors were reviewing when they said, hey, the trajectory of this year is unsustainable, was a year when the messengers had voted for us to conduct uh, an investigation into sexual uh, abuse and the uh, and and of course we wound up hiring guidepost solutions to conduct that investigation. Man, that was expensive. That was just the cost of the investigation, really expensive, and um, it depleted half of the reserves uh, of the executive committee. But I'm thankful to say that I, it would be unsustainable for us to vote every year to have a sexual abuse investigation. But I don't think there's anybody who actually wants to do that. And this year, we've not had a guidepost investigation. We've not had that expense. And instead of depleting half of the convention's reserves, the reserve funds, as of the last report that I got, uh, have been holding steady at $4.6 million uh, for the executive committee. So, so 
holding steady with our reserves, uh, we can sustain that. And, um, and and I feel like it's even going to improve from there because we have this Department of Justice investigation that's going on. So there, uh, even with that, even with the year that we've had this year, there have been uh, excessive legal costs that are associated with uh, kind of these some of these one-time events. And um, so, uh, so you know, the best thing that we could do uh, would be don't conduct an expensive investigation like that every year. Uh, and also uh, try to do the things that will help us to resolve questions about sexual abuse and about uh, other items so that we have less legal costs than we have right now. Well, I think one of the concerns with um, the unsustainable direction um, is for sure what you just talked about, which I think clarifies for a lot of people that, oh, the, these it's not just this ongoing thing. But one of the concerns is the ascending liability mm -hmm. uh, conversation and uh, whether or not there's going to be new costs associated that uh, with lawsuits and category four and these types of things. Uh, there's been a lot of conversations, public and private, about these things. H how should Southern Baptist think about um, that category four and just costs going forward, liability, ascending liability? Um, in particular, as it relates to the EC and how we cooperate for mission. Sure. So I think it's perhaps the 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 brass tacks things to say is that uh, no court case anywhere has attached ascending liability uh, to Southern Baptists. Um, the court cases, that's something that I'm uh, up to date on. Some of these I'm having to give depositions or testify or involved in the litigation. Um, I need to be careful about commenting on ongoing litigation uh, that's going on. But I'll just say that, um, you know, the, con the convention, um, we just saw a case dismissed at Southwestern Seminary, uh, the, the Roe v. Patterson case. Um, we've got, I think, a very good case to offer in the Rollins v. Pressler case that the SBC uh, is engaged in. Uh, and I can tell you that at every point along the way, um, we're still arguing because it's a fact. We're arguing the autonomy of our local churches and the non-connectionalism of the SBC structure. Nobody anywhere is doing away with that. Um, it's a this is a it's it's an uncomfortable subject. Uh, anything that has to do with sexual abuse, clergy sexual abuse, is going to be an uncomfortable subject because it's it's full of hurt and betrayal and blasphemy and deceit. And it's okay to feel uncomfortable about this subject and to feel nervous about this subject. But I feel like part of what's going on here is that people are nervous and uncomfortable about the task force because they're worried. What if the task force were radicalized and started doing things to, to damage or trod underfoot? Uh, local church autonomy or to do foolhardy things that would jeopardize the convention. And uh, I'm, I'm just going to tell everybody they're not. They're not a radicalized task force that doesn't believe in those things or is going to tread them underfoot. Talk about local church autonomy. Um, you know, um, a, a lot of people who are listening to this learned what local church autonomy was in Gregory Will's classroom, and he's on the task force, okay? So the task force 
those are people who understand our policy polity and understand local church autonomy. And I just don't take my word for it. Let me ask a question for folks to think about that may help to think through whether this is a radicalized, foolhardy task force or not. If this were a, if this were a task force of people out to do some radical, dangerous thing, why haven't they done it already? Why didn't they do it in October? Because they're not waiting on a vote. The messengers already voted to authorize them to hire anybody they want and to put up the ministry check website just the way, according to that four criterion definition that the messengers voted on last year. They're not waiting on anybody's authority to do anything, nor are they waiting on money. They have, they have send relief funds that they barely spent any of that are available for them. To, to do whatever they want. And so if, if, if you worry that they might be, that they might have some foolish or nefarious idea that they have in mind about what they're going to do, you have to explain why once they had the money and the authority, they didn't do that. And instead, what they've done is uh, they, they proposed the idea of using faith-based solutions, a, a division of guideposts, and then they retracted that. And now they're going a different direction that doesn't involve guideposts. Um, the reason why they're doing that, I, I thought the best thing I've heard in this conversation leading up to New Orleans was something that, that Pastor Mike Stone said that I thought I, I stood up and cheered when he said it. And that was the idea that we should listen to everybody, including people whose views we might not agree with. We should listen to their contributions to, to concerns that they have. And if that's the kind of task force that you want, congratulations, you've got it. Mm. And you've had it since last year, because at every point along the way, the reason why they haven't thrown their authority around and thrown their money around and pushed whatever is because they've listened to everyone's concerns. Uh, but they are listening to everyone. You can't say you want to listen to everyone and then pick out the survivor advocates and say, but not them. And what our task force has done is they've listened to the whole spectrum of people who have concerns on all sides. And they understand that, uh, that, that the, the real implementation task force is your local church. And so they're looking for solutions that get widespread buy-in and unify Southern Baptists. And so you talked about criterion four uh, and the credibly accused definition. And, you know, that's one of the things that the task force is still working on. Nobody wants something that falsely accuses somebody and puts them on the database. I tell you, Rachel Den Hollander doesn't want that. Uh, I've, I've talked to her about this. Here's what survivor advocates know. They know that the moment we find the first person who's exonerated, who's falsely accused, put on that website and exonerated, the credibility of that website is tanked at that moment. And they want it to work. They want it to work to help churches that choose and want to prevent abuse. They want this to be a resource that works for them. And so really, uh, Jeff, everybody is so much closer to being on the same page uh, than, than our heightened, tense, partisan times uh, allow sometimes us to imagine. And so, uh, so the reason why this process is taking so long is because we really are close to one another and what we're looking to do. And we really are working to get to a place where we're all united uh, in what we're going to do to address the problem of sexual abuse. No, that's, that's helpful. I was in a conversation 
the other day where there was widespread agreement in the room about why there would be concerns about a fourth category. Just from the most of the, it was a group of pastors. They were in a room and they'd all known someone essentially that that had been falsely accused in some, some kind of way. At the same time, they all knew of situations where someone had gotten away with, uh, with, you know, things that people need to be alerted to, but they wouldn't end up uh, on on an abuse you know site that is currently available. I heard a stat today that um, something like twenty five out of a thousand uh, sexual abuse cases, twenty five of those people are convicted. I, I I know of some personally where you know it came down to are we going to put our daughter on the stand? Yeah. And they're like, we're not going to we're not going to go through that and get cross examined. And so people understood, hey, I, I can understand why there'd be concerns with the fourth category, but I also can understand why people would be compelled to have a fourth quarter, uh, category like the Southern Baptist Convention um, voted to approve this past year. I think guide uh, I, I think our sexual abuse task force um, is working on uh, a proposal right now to essentially say, we aren't there yet on category four in terms of how it needs to be in place. Uh, we're not quitting. We, we're not removing it necessarily. But over the course of this past year, we feel like we're in a place where we think we need more time to get it right. Uh, and I think that's what they're going to come to the convention with. The, the, the other categories are easier, yeah. um, but that fourth category is the trickier one. How do you think Southern Baptists should be thinking about that uh, as they think about the proposal that the task force will bring to them at the convention? First of all, you're exactly right. That's where the task force is. They're prepared to launch a ministry check website using categories one, two, and three of credibly accused, but without a category four. And I think Southern Baptists on both, uh, well, I'm not going to say both sides. Like you said, both sides are in individual people's hearts. Uh, that you can look and say, how terrible would it be for somebody to be accused falsely? Uh, but you also know that um, that there are times when we would just, we would warn a buddy who was about to hire somebody. We would say, listen, you just need to know that at our church, four different people in the youth group accused. Uh, this guy said something untoward had happened. None of them wanted to go to court and testify. There's not a conviction. but we're friends. We went to seminary together. You're looking at hiring this guy. And I just have to tell you that uh, that this is a, a very dangerous move for you to take. So I think it's not even two different sides of the convention. It's two sides of our own hearts. It's two sides of our own thinking about this. And uh, I think both sides of your heart can be encouraged about what the task force is doing, because you can look and see that they understand the need for something beyond you were convicted in court. But you can also see that they are absolutely not going to do anything that jeopardizes the whole situation by being a a, a sloppy um, kind of an attempt at at Category 4 that results in injustice toward people who've just been falsely accused. And, um, And I believe that Southern Baptists will continue to work on this until we solve it or discover that we can't. Uh, Either way, we ought to do the things we all agree on that we can do. We ought to proceed with those. And that's what the task force is doing. Yeah, no, that's helpful. What 
One of the other uh, major issues in people are discussing right now has to do with uh, women pastors in Southern Baptist life. Um, the role of Saddleback and potentially, you know, uh, trying to uh, appeal the decision to remove them. Um, Mike Law's amendment um, and, you know, a, a number of different factors related to those things. How should Southern Baptists think about um, the nature of cooperation right now, the role of the Baptist faith and message um, 2000 in Southern Baptist life, particularly as it relates to these issues? Well, I think to, to go down to kind of first principles instead of specific stuff, just to talk about our underlying idea, there has always been an inflexible um, doctrinal core of what you have to believe uh, to cooperate in the Southern Baptist Convention. Even before, we didn't have a written statement of faith until 1925. But even in the years before that, if you were Presbyterian, you couldn't join the Southern Baptist Convention, right? Uh, and so uh, we had unwritten doctrinal standards. And, um, you know, in some ways that's handy. You have an unwritten doctrinal standard. And what that means is uh, the messengers don't have to give a reason. They can just, if they question somebody's credentials, you just sort it out year by year and the messengers just make their choice. Uh, but when we came to the modernist, fundamentalist controversy, evolution controversy in 1925. Uh, and particularly, I think it's important that that's the same year that we adopt the cooperative program. As we look to be more organized in what we're doing together, we come to realize more and more that we need to have some sort of basic doctrinal agreement, a core of, of doctrinal ideas that unite us as Baptists. Um, I want to say that because sometimes you'll hear people talk as though as though we've never had a doctrinal standard that we would impose. But um, I think if we'll all stop and think about that for a minute, we'll realize that, um, that you know, a lot of new networks get formed these days and they all have some kind of doctrinal core that's a part of it because it's just, it's because of the second reality. The first reality is there's always a doctrinal core that's inflexible that you just have to adhere to to be able to be a part of a family of churches. Um, but the second part of it is, as Southern Baptists, we tend to shape what that doctrinal core is based upon what serves best the mission and the function for which we're gathered as Southern Baptists. And... Um, that's that's varied from time to time. And the reason it's varied, the reason it's moved in 1925, we adopted the Baptist faith and message because we had that controversy going on, that modernist fundamentalist evolution controversy that was going on. Go forward to 1963. And when you get to 1963, we've got the Broadman commentary controversy that's going on. So we're having uh, conversations about the reality of the book of Genesis and about, you know, the historicity of the first 11 chapters and all of those things. And uh, those controversies, then you come forward to the conservative resurgence, the conversation about biblical inerrancy, um, all of these were points of disagreement that made it hard for us to work together. And uh, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 uh, arises out of that, and it contains a statement about the office of pastor and, and about the role of women. Um, so... And all of that, the principle that we have is we need to we need to be able to make decisions about what our boundaries are in terms of doctrine. 
I think this is a decision, unlike some of those others, maybe kind of like 1963, where we had said what we wanted to say about the nature of the Bible, but it became clear that it needed to be clarified more, that, that, that people were interpreting the same language to mean different things. Um, this situation feels kind of like that. Um, but there, but there is, there, there's some difference right now from the, from that controversy too, from the Broadman uh, commentary controversy and whatever else. And that is, I feel like we were comfortable in 1963 and again in 2000 with saying, you know what, if you don't believe the Bible, you probably don't fit here. And in this case, we've got to be real careful to make sure that we're not saying, if you're a woman and you want to serve Christ, you don't fit here. Uh, it'd be a real danger with, with inadvertently communicating that. And um, I think it's important to say while we're talking about this, that actually the Baptist Faith and Message article on stewardship requires people to give their time, talent, and energy uh, to, to the Lord in service. And for women who are gifted and equipped to do so and go to seminary and get training and whatever else, they would be violating the Baptist faith and message to say, well, I'm going to serve on church staff. I'm not going to help in the children's ministry, student ministry, or women's ministry, or whatever area it may be that they're called into to serve. Um, so it's important to affirm that God calls women to serve in ministry. Women are a valuable part of ministry in the church. I think it's also important to say that uh, one difference between us and Catholics uh, would be that we believe that the priesthood's open to men and women, that all believers are priests. And as our churches are congregational in governance, we've got women who are, you know, unlike the, the curia of the, uh, of the Roman Catholic Church, um, we, we, we say the man needs to be a pastor, but women pick who he is. Uh, because they're part of the vote of a church to call people to serve in those offices in our churches. And so there's actually a prominent role for women in Southern Baptist churches, uh, but we limit the office of pastor. The Baptist Faith and Message says there are two church offices that pertain to the whole church. There's the office of pastor. Uh, in 1925, the language of elder and overseer was in there. Uh, we mean elder and overseer together with pastor when we talk about the, about the pastor. And then there's the office of deacon, and we say that the office of pastor is limited to men. Uh, I think that's something that we're applying now already. Uh, we've got two churches that are going to be appealing uh, this year, Fern Creek and Saddleback, who have already been uh, declared not to be in friendly cooperation with the SBC. They're, they're not affiliated with the SBC right now already. That's something that the executive committee has done this year. That although you know Fern Creek's been in membership for a long time, past years of the executive committee never took an action like this, but we've done it this year. And now these appeals are coming. I think what's going to happen is that messengers are going to affirm what I believe, which as which is that we meant it when we said that the office of pastor is limited to men who are qualified by scripture. I think it's healthy for us as Southern Baptists to make it clear that we've not wavered on that. And I think it's biblical. I think it's sound ecclesiology. I think it's in line with what Baptists have overwhelmingly done in Southern Baptist life with the office of pastor throughout our history. And um, I feel like it's important for us to, to clarify that. And I think we will. 
Oh, that's that's helpful. I think one of the concerns that um, or one of the concerns I've heard is the concern that uh, in particular with the Mike Law Amendment, which from people that affirm that position is the concern that some pastors in situations where they're, let's say, reforming a church and it's it's they've come into a thing that they believe the bad faith of message, but it's a church that's been dually aligned. It's a church that uh, might have a a women's children's pastor, and they use that language, and it's not as convictional, or maybe it used to be convictional, and they're just in the middle of that, that it could unnecessarily push push them out um, or put them in a in an awkward position there that actually could hurt a really good work that's that's taking place. Um, others have said, you know, the credentials committee could they'd be able to to sniff that out, and it'd be a different kind of thing. How do you think about the the amendment and just how it would apply to churches that are in all kinds of different stages of uh, growth and reform and faithfulness? Well, first of all, I'll say that um, I would write a different amendment if I were writing an amendment. Um, I think hanging everything on the title and hanging it only on one of the three titles that that the Baptists have used that the Bible uses to refer to that office. Um, is not as helpful uh, of a uh, of a way to approach this because then it's all terminology and no substance. And so there are some circumstances where just me, my opinion about how things ought to go, I would come to a church and say, you shouldn't use the word pastor to refer to that office. And yet, I don't have any reason why that person should change any of what they're doing. I just think the title's wrong. And I mean, you're right. Some of our titles are not convictional at all. Uh, we don't admit how often we just follow a, a, a trend. <laughs> how often we just say, you know, the church down the street over here, they're calling all their staff, they, they pastor of something, pastor of connections and pastor, of, you know, whatever. And I think that's cool. Let's do that too. Uh, pastor. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I had a guy talk to me this year and say, I was the first guy called youth pastor in the state of Oklahoma. And here's how that happened. They called a youth minister. I got hired. I came in. I just started calling myself the youth pastor and they went with it. Uh, so it wasn't even really the church's choice. He just, he just called an audible on that. Uh, for me, I would, I would, and I'm not saying I'm trying to oppose this as president of the SBC. I'm just talking about my opinion. Okay. For me, if you've got somebody on your staff who's a man, who's not an elder, he's not a pastor either. Uh, and so, you know, the way we use that terminology here at FBC Farmersville is very deliberate. Um, but I know that's not the case everywhere. Uh, and so I think uh, earlier, some of what the Credentials Committee was trying to do, they were saying, where you've got title and function that come in together. There, you've got a really clear case where you've got the office of pastor that's happening, and uh, those are some those are some questions that that if we do come to the place where we say you just can't call anybody a pastor who's not legitimately a pastor, elder, overseer, then boy, you better not throw that in in five minutes and say now let's kick everybody out who doesn't live up to that because there's a tremendous amount of of education and conversation that that needs to happen with churches who really fit in the SBC. They've just adopted a terminology 
that that I might say doesn't even really line up with what they believe. Uh, that they that they call somebody, they say, "Well, this is our children's pastor," but you ask, "Would that person be qualified to be the lead pastor of the church? Could you see them promoting into that position?" And they would say, "Well, they're not qualified for that." No. Um, so, uh, so I do think that there's um, that there's some need there to have conversation and try to persuade each other ahead of just kicking everybody out of the convention. That's good. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the concerns that people have when they look at um, a situation with Saddleback. Um, You know, they talk, the framers of the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, they didn't want it to be a creed, but on the other hand, they didn't want it to be meaningless. And I think the removal of Saddleback shows it's not meaningless but there are concerns that some might want to weaponize it and and move it closer to the creed and and search out people that may have changed you know the the name and they're saying ah oh, but there might be not op- they're not operating in the way that they should be you know there's some of those conversations should some of us be concerned about that or do you think it's just it's how do you think we should avoid um both meaningless and creedalism so I'll tell you, as somebody who the last time I went to school chose to study Baptist history and Baptist thought, I've yet to hear anybody define creedalism in a way that it was real clear where that line is. Uh, I think the healthiest way for us to talk about that is what I said a while ago. Um, How strict and how lenient does our statement of faith and our application of it need to be? for this partnership to function. That's that's really what it comes down to, I think. Uh, and that's more along the lines of that theological triage, you know, mm-hmm. primary, secondary, tertiary sort of thing. Um, and so, um, so having said that, I mean, I think the question I would ask is, what do you think we have now? Because here's the situation we have right now. We have Article 3 of the Constitution, which says that the Baptist faith and message, some level of agreement with the Baptist faith and message is a requirement to be cooperating with the SBC. And so that's been that way for several years that it, that it says that. So, so already the Baptist faith and message is a boundary. It just, it says closely identified with in wording that's really vague. Okay. But some unspecified level of agreement with the Baptist faith and message is presently, right now, before we do anything this year in New Orleans, required for your church to affiliate with the Baptist with, with the Southern Baptist Convention. Now, later, we revised Bylaw 8 and we added a standing credentials committee. And so with a standing credentials committee in place, anybody can refer a church to the credentials committee and say, I think their faith and practice puts them beyond the boundary of being able to cooperate with the SBC. And the credentials committee not only has the authority to decide what closely identified with means, they are required to do it. They are required to make a ruling on every referral that's made to them. And so they whatever blanks Southern Baptists have left by saying, well, it's closely identified with, we have a small committee of people who must fill in those blanks. 
every time a, a, a referral is made about a church. And so if there's a level of authority or strictness for the Baptist faith and message that people are uncomfortable with, what makes you think we haven't already crossed that line with the structure that we have? It's just that we've crossed that line in a way that the messengers don't even really get always to, to apply those ideas. We have a committee that gets to that gets to do that on our behalf. And so I think we really do need to come to an answer. I think we need to look at Bylaw 8 and Article 3, how those two things interact with each other, and come to an answer that is clear and consistent so that we're not litigating it with a new amendment every year. Mm -hmm. Something that's a clear and consistent statement about exactly how we measure the doctrinal compatibility of churches. Uh, with the with the Southern Baptist Convention, and we need to try to do it in a way where we're not. Um, I mean, I think the way the way I would say it is the intersection right now. In my opinion, the intersection of Article Three and Bylaw Eight is a six lane highway intersection with no stop signs or stoplights. Uh, it, it's it's not just that you might have an accident someday. We're having one right now. And we know that if we don't do something to put some rules in place for that intersection, we're going to watch accident after accident after accident come straight into that intersection. And so I think what we've got to do is set this up in such a way that everybody knows what the rules are and the rules are set by the messengers. And it's done in a way where uh, if you're in, you can be confident that you're in without thinking they're coming for me next, mm -hmm. you know, and if you're out. At least people are honest to you about that. And you don't have to sit around the way it is now. There are lines you can cross that you're going to get kicked out. We just won't tell you what they are until you go across them. That's that's no way to be fair to everybody involved. And so um, and so I really do believe that uh, that it's important for us uh, to come to a point where where we don't have some sort of reactionary knee jerk uh, creedalism. But where instead we health in a healthy and responsible way define clearly where we don't have to litigate it every year at the annual meeting, define clearly what are the boundaries of cooperation doctrinally for churches in the SBC. No, that's helpful. I mean, we've touched on this in a number of different ways, but in particularly relating to these couple of issues. But right now, I feel like in Southern Baptist life, there's a fracturing taking place that uh, and dividing that hasn't happened. Uh, there's always been divisions. There's always been uh, different groups, different streams, but it seemed that they seem more intensely divided uh, than in past. Trust seems lower um, mm -hmm. than it's been uh, in a long time. I mean, it's it's unique. I mean, you know, to to have someone run against you, um, even though you know that everybody's free to do whatever, but to have Presidential, uh, presidential race uh, after the first year of a president. That hasn't happened really since the conservative resurgence outside of, I think, our friend Wiley Drake. But um, and so it's just but it just speaks to the larger uh, temperature in the room, so to speak, with, with Southern Baptist life. H how do you think um, Southern Baptists can uh, particularly listen this this next year can increase trust? can increase unity so that maybe this time next year we're in a better spot or at least feel like we're headed in a better direction. 
Well, um, first of all, I want to clarify something that you didn't say, but I want to make sure that I'm not saying. Uh, and that is, uh, I, I don't take it as, um, as, as disruptive, divisive, or uh, in any way inappropriate that Mike Stone is being nominated for the office of president this year. Um, uh, it, um, the, the fact of the matter is, everybody should do what the Lord leads them to do. And um, if if God has placed it uh, in somebody's heart to be nominated, uh, we have a we have a Southern Baptist tradition of not running in the second year. Okay, but you can't let a Southern Baptist tradition trump your fidelity to the Lord's call. And so, if the Lord's called Mike to to have his name placed in nomination this year, that's what you should do. Um, but it is true that there's obviously uh, a lot of tension in the convention right now. Um, I think we should esteem one another as greater than ourselves. Uh, I think part of the way of doing that uh, is sometimes when you have the authority to uh, to to drop the hammer, um, take a moment and and build trust uh, instead of throwing around your authority. I said that about the task force a while ago. I appreciate that when they've had the authority to just act, not ask anybody's permission. They have instead chosen to value the opinions of other people in the convention. And uh, that's uh, it, does it mean that it takes longer to come to solutions? You bet it does. But it's also a way of building trust and goodwill that I think is, is vital. Uh, there's a degree to which we have a uh, we have we have institutional associationalism in the SBC. Where you know we can say I, I belong to my church belongs to this local association, this state convention, this national convention, but there is an organic associationalism under that that just says we feel like we belong together, and and we can cultivate that by doing those sorts of actions to build trust and show respect and consideration for other points of view. I hope that I can do that in our annual meeting. Right now we have. We have discussions on Twitter and Facebook right now. We have uh, discussions on podcasts and all that sort of thing. Uh, in a few weeks, we're going to gather in a big meeting where we come together and discuss these issues. My objective in that is to be unwaveringly fair and respectful to everyone who's there. And to the degree that, I mean, I, I can do that for me, Jed, to the degree that everybody else comes to New Orleans determined without compromising your convictions and without losing the ability to, to state your case and try to persuade people, determined to be unwaveringly fair, loving and considerate of one another, that helps to rebuild that trust. Uh, and and then the last thing is this: I think one of the one of the great discipleship needs that we have uh, right now for us as Christians. I think uh, let's really get controversial. I think this applies even to secular political elections, presidential elections in the U.S. and whatever else. Um, and I'm preaching this to myself because I don't know what the outcome of the presidential election is going to be. Okay, um, I think we have to learn as disciples to receive from God's hand the outcome we didn't want. And to do that without deciding 
I'm going to cast aspersions on people on the other side, or I'm going to refuse to accept that outcome and argue what it was that happened that made that an illegitimate outcome or anything like that. Uh, I, I don't want to be that person. And so, you know, if I, if I go into, if I go into new Orleans and if I lose the presidential election, I am determined to lose the presidential election if that happens in a way that builds unity and trust in Southern Baptist Convention and in a way that looks and says, uh, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And we're still brothers and sisters together as a part of all of that. And I think we'll treat everybody fairly. And if we'll treat everybody with respect, and if we'll accept from the Lord whatever outcome comes, that's the kind of attitude that makes for a healthy, cooperative relationship that we can have with each other. Well, that's really helpful. You know, you mentioned social media. Um, the you know, with a president, one with a year of presidential uh, um, um, as president of the SBC under your belt, and social media is a is the kind of thing that uh, for a long time Southern Baptist presidents didn't have to think about as um, they engaged with people. What have you learned over the past year um, as your role as SBC president on social media? What's what's helped, hurt? You know, yeah. what are your thoughts on that moving forward? So I've certainly made mistakes, I'll say. Uh, but I think also I've done some things that are good. There's a way of approaching this where you just shut off your social media accounts and you don't talk to people. And yet I think that there's a desire for authenticity and transparency uh, from people who are in leadership, uh, as long as it's healthy. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I'm, I, I, had, I had two things I wanted to do when I came into the office. One of those was um, I wanted to feel the weight of the fact that um, that a lot of people feel represented by me now. And so I don't want to do things that embarrass them for the SBC. And um, and yet the other side of it is I didn't want to turn into somebody completely other than the guy they elected. The moment that I assumed office, uh, that's that's probably not good either. And so, you know, I've tried to navigate uh, those two concerns, and I've done so imperfectly, but also good in some ways. I think, um, I, I mean, it's hokey down on the farm, uh, uh, here's my cow named Lottie Moon uh, stuff, but, but I have tried hard to use social media to promote the mission boards, seminaries, uh, Lottie Moon Christmas offering, the Annie Armstrong Easter offering, the cooperative program, Southern Baptist disaster relief, uh, all things related to Southern Baptists. And I think that's part of my job. And my social media presence, I think, helps me to do those things. Um, and um, so I think I think there's there's good that comes from that. I, uh, missionaries, Southern Baptist missionaries around the world reach out to me through direct messages and things like that on social media and feel that they know the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. And that's not because I've been to their country and it's not because of a Baptist Press article that they read. It's because they follow me on social media and they feel that they have that connection. But then, you know, the other side of it is that that sometimes, um, you know, sometimes 
people get on social media just to try to bait me into uh, some sort of a testy exchange. And, um, and, and I have not universally been wise enough not to fall for that. Uh, and, uh, and so um, I feel like there are some lessons learned there, uh, some improvement as time goes by. Um, um, nobody has figured out social media. It, we, it, is, it changes. And it is in its adolescence. And I think we're all to some degree trying to figure out the best way to use it. Uh, and um, but but the fact is, it cannot be ignored. It is it is here and it's a major factor. Well, thank you so much for the time uh, today, Bart. Really appreciate you joining us on the Baptist Twin One podcast. And I'd, I'd like to thank everyone for joining us on the Baptist Twin One podcast today. We hope to see you at the Baptist 21 lunch panel. On Tuesday of the convention, we have great panelists. And for the first year ever, we have Chick-fil-A. So if uh, you want to join us, and we hope you do, there'll be more information at Baptist21.com. You can sign up for the event there. Hope to see you there. Thanks for joining us on the Baptist 21 podcast. Thank you for listening to the Baptist 21 podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at our website, baptist21.com. Also, please be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast with others. It would really help us out. If you ever have thoughts or ideas for future interviews, please reach out to us at our email, baptist21 at gmail.com. Again, thanks for listening to the podcast.